Hey now, welcome to the Twin Geekcast with Calvin and David. This week we're taking a look at Sidney Lumet's 1976 masterpiece, Network. We're mad as hell, and we're not going to take this anymore. Movies and friendship, those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right, back with another podcast this week. How are you doing, Calvin? Oh, doing fine. You know, uh, had some car travels today, but I uh, finally got everything sorted out. So looking forward right. to today's film. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun to talk about. But first, as usual, we'll get into the weekly box office. Fantastic. At number 10, we have A Star is Born, uh, probably holding on for its last week here. Yeah, if it's a 10, it's probably coming out of here real soon. But man, what a run. Yeah, yeah, I think um, it's... For never breaking first place, it's held on longer than any of the films that did in its time in the box office. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's, um, I think it's got a good chance at awards season. I mean, there's still that buzz didn't go away the last month that it's been in box office. You know, that's still all I see. You know, people I see people still talking about a Star Is Born in various different ways. Never, you know, like this is the greatest film ever sort of thing. But you know, it's still being talked about. So I'm sure come. February, it'll be talked about some more still. I think it's a film of the moment that people enjoyed getting out to see, and people are going back to see. So I think it's uh, I think it's going to get big again once it comes out on video very soon here. Yeah, I'm sure probably by January time or something it'll come out. Absolutely. At number nine, we have Green Book, which is about... Um, it's like a reverse like Driving Miss Daisy, where this uh, black guy gets this... Uh, southern guy from uh the southern white guy who has a little bit worse manners and uh isn't very well acclimated um i haven't gotten around to seeing that yet oh this is actually the first i've heard of it i mean i saw it a little bit mentioned god i should keep up more but i saw a little bit mentioned on twitter today but wow i didn't see they got a good cast here with Vigo mortensen and mahershala ali yeah i mean i think it i think it looks fine i i look forward to seeing it probably on video on demand it's not going to stay in the charts for another week so um, mm-hmm. Good to see it here for this week. Yep, glad it cracked. Unlike uh, some other films that really should be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess on on that note, we have uh, at number nineteen we have favorite. I just want to mention that that's one of the films left for me this year that I'm that I'm looking forward to in like a best of the year kind of way. Right. Uh, was it Yorgos Lan? I don't even remember how to pronounce the name exactly, but. Nothing but great stuff from him with the lobster and killing of a sacred deer. Yeah, right. I I expect such great things from that movie, and I I feel like it's one where my anticipation isn't going to be met with any disappointment based on his prior work. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a shame that it's only like at 19, but we saw the same problem with Suspiria earlier as well, and it's just that these films that really should just get better distribution. People would go out to see this film, I'm certain, if it got out there. Certainly, I mean... At least in the same level to to get up there. I don't know. Maybe it's not worth it um, financially for the studios. I mean, we saw what happened to Widows, but yeah, this one's a very limited release. I think it's only on. It's not on that many screens. It's on. Um, let's see. Yeah, only four screens. So, I mean, four, right now, four yeah, screens. yeah, it's that limited. I just want to mention that I'm that excited about it. So, nothing to worry right. about there yet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to what we were eight, right? Yeah, we're at eight with Widows, which is still hanging in there, and is still the best thing that you could go see in theater right now. Mm-hmm. It's disappointing that it never came out with a big smash like it probably should have, but 
you know, being in there for two weeks at least, that's better than some of these films, again, like we just talked about with, what, the favorite here. But I, I don't know, I guess favorite, like you said, with four screens, but... Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, this one's in, you know, it's it's in half the screens in the country. It's a... Uh, Widows is really great. I, um, I think we did have that conversation about it. Like, we should get out and cover this right away because it's going to be such a hit in box office. And, and yeah, uh, well, instead it's... Not- it's you know, it's more a critical, darling. Yeah, it certainly is. But there's no reason not to go see it, certainly. You know, we've got our own review up there because we were excited to, to get it up and go. Go check it out on TwinGeeks.com. Calvin wrote a great review for it. Thank you. And I felt like that was a hard 9 out of 10, too. Like, a, I, there were points in it where I was like, this is the most entertained I've been this year. This is, you know, it's really the one time I had been on the edge of my seat. Except there was the baby in the screening with me, which I'm still dismayed about. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really consistent rating with everything I've seen as well. Like, it might be a bit higher still than some of the stuff, but I haven't seen anything below an 8 as far as among our other peers here. So people are really loving it. So I'm I'm baffled as to why it's not doing better at the box office. Well-deserved, I think. And I think that there's there's that thing where it's based on the old TV show that people don't know about. Um, I mean, maybe that's a part of the problem. Um, well, it didn't stop Mission Impossible, not for sure. <laughs> It yeah, definitely didn't. I don't I don't see why widows can't be the same thing. Um I mean maybe maybe part of the problem, like part and parcel, is what what the film's fighting against. That that it's led by a you know, Viola Davis and it's a very black feminine cast. Um you know, those things you know, for better or worse, they, they don't always sell and we're finally getting representation, but it doesn't mean that they're going to start selling right away. It's gonna take a while. Well, you know, Calvin, maybe if there were less people out there complaining about babies in the theaters, then we'd have more families going to see this and filling out the seats. At number seven, we have Robin Hood, and uh, I, I'm i not going to go see it. I, I really have no interest, and there's too many Robin Hood movies. What's uh, your favorite version? Uh, I mean, it's it's probably still the Disney one, but I'm not a huge fan of just about any of them even like the classic errol flynn one that everyone loves from 1938 i mean i i watched that just recently for the first time and i'm like all right it's all right you know you got your kind of swashbuckling adventure thing going on there but it's not anything interesting most people i think love the um the kevin costner one but not because of kevin costner but because alan rickman's a great sheriff yeah i think I think Alan Rickman is a good enough reason to go watch that one right now. Instead of this, um, I I just have no interest in a dark Robin Hood right now. There's why why even make this? Well, from from what I understand, this is a, a baffling kind of adaptation because they're also trying to contemporize it in many ways, and a lot of the outfits and you know set pieces going on there, as well as the political subtext they have going on with it. It's just a really confusing thing as to why they would make the choices that they have. And the ratings for the film certainly show that it was none of the good ones. Yeah. Also, one other thing I have... I was going to say, one other problem I have with the film is that we need to stop casting Ben Mendelsohn as this ridiculous <laughs> over-the-top villain in everything. I'm tired of seeing it. Don't put it... I mean, he's in Rogue One doing the same thing. He's doing it in Ready Player One. Now he's doing it in Robin Hood 2. Stop <laughs> it. I'm tired of seeing it. So we're done with that. Uh, please stop. Um, at number six, we have Instant Family. Uh, what's what's so disappointing is this placing above Widows. Because <laughs> uh, I guess on Thanksgiving, all of y'all would just went and rewarded these 
white saviors of uh, you know orphaned kids and uh, i fucking hate the box office some days <laughs> no kidding it keeps rewarding mark Wahlberg when we really shouldn't i mean no, no offense marky mark but you've made some better choices yeah let's not reward him for this well there's um there's so much else out there that uh, i understand it's thanksgiving you uh you might just want to go see a heartwarming movie, and that might be a part of Widow's problem. But, but I mean, there's there's no excuse for this. At number five, we have a Bohemian Rhapsody, still um, still making a ton of money. No surprise, you know, people are going to go see a movie about Queen. We talked about it. It looks like exactly what you'd expect. Brian Singer sucks. <laughs> I guess some of my disappointment is still that they messed with the song choices and when they kind of took place in the film um but i think they could have also gotten like a bowie stand in i think that would have been the most interesting thing that you know they don't even cover under pressure which is i think the best popular queen song right well that's like a whole other thing like you could probably make a whole movie about the writing of under pressure if you really wanted to which would be cool but i, I don't think that's something you should do Oh, God, please don't do that, actually. <laughs> but if you get Sasha Baron and then someone else to play... Maybe he also plays Bowie. And then, <laughs> oh, my God, um, that's great. No, no, okay, let's do this now. Sasha, yeah. play both parts for us. I want to see... I, not even, like, any effect of it. I just want to see him running back and forth, playing the characters and, like, swapping out makeup in between. I'm so down for that. Um, <laughs> what I'm not down for is number four, Fantastic Beasts. Um, I still haven't decided if there are actually Fantastic Beasts fans out there. Uh, Fantastic Beast fans, if you're out there, please contact Calvin to let him know. <laughs> I, I don't see why people are going to see it in droves. I mean, I get it, you love the Harry Potter world, but this isn't this isn't what I'm looking for. Um, well, it doesn't even seem like there are particularly interesting characters going on either, Like, except for maybe everyone having a new crush on Jude Law as Dumbledore. Oh, yeah. He is a very sexy Dumbledore, but... Yeah, I guess not... that's the thing, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, get, I don't know, that's the only appeal I see at this film anyway. Eddie Redmayne doesn't make a compelling uh, protagonist to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. It, well, especially with, at least with the character as he seems to be written. And also, his, he just doesn't seem to have a place in this film about a grand-scale wizarding um, word. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. What's, well, what is the word? It's 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 like a clash between two people. Feud, feud. There feud. we go. Wizarding feud. I figured there you it go. Out. <laughs> I think, uh, well, last week you had asked uh, what were the good prequels, so I put together a small list of what I thought were the best prequels. Um, oh, like prequel series. Cool. Yeah, I have uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. As, oh, yeah, I guess it is kind of a prequel because it takes place in the Civil War as opposed to where the other ones take place afterwards in the kind of late 1800s. Yeah, yeah. that works as a prequel. I like that. And I think it's, um, I, I mean, it's the best one in the series, I think, at least in those three. Uh, not in even three. really a series, but in the spiritual way that it, it came before and it did something, you know, a little bit more interesting than just copying Yo Jimbo. Right. So I, I, I get uh, the sense with it there and that it technically counts as a prequel, so we'll give it a pass there. But you're right in how, like, it doesn't expand thematically on the character, you know, by giving him some backstory or anything. And um, my favorite on this list, I put together uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Mm-hmm. Oh, you have a whole uh, article, I believe, about that somewhere, don't you? Yeah, yeah, we'll put that up. Uh, we'll put that up uh, in the um, near future here. But I think that's most interesting because you're taking a TV series. And, you know, this has been done before with, like, Star Trek, where you could go back in the past a little bit and find something 
new to make into a movie. I mean, you you don't really want to work in the same framework as television because you need an isolated story. And uh, David Lynch kind of kind of found like what's special about Twin Peaks, and also made a very very confusing thing that uh, didn't really get popular until many years after release. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I think the interesting spin with uh, Firewalk with me as well is that you're giving context to this character who has had such an impact on the show since the very opening scenes of it and who who had no character essentially to speak of, you know, it's really only her presence that's felt, but then you give her character through this film. And it's a really interesting way to revitalize the series and give a new perspective. And it's almost it's almost a crucial part to going into the um, new series. Like, a, I mean, Firewalk With Me didn't have a lot of established value after season two, right? Because there was just that time of dead air. But then Showtime has this lengthy Twin Peaks series now where... Um, it's full of value now, you know, it's like a check that's finally been written in cash. Um, so I, I, I gotta ask one opinion on uh, Firewalk me real quick, Kevin, because mm-hmm. I've seen some debate amongst people within the Twin Geeks fan base, and you seem to be a big proponent of it. Do you think it's better for someone to watch the series from the beginning, and then go and watch Firewalk me, or should they see Firewalk me before anything? I'm trying to think, because you have one day left of Filmstruck, and I'm trying to choose carefully. <laughs> um, I think that it I, I think I'd watch it anyway. I think Twin Peaks is broadly um, a part of culture, and and that you've you've probably heard the story, whether or not you're you're fully aware. You, I'm sure you know all the beats and have seen it in all the media that it's influenced. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think there's any real hesitance to to not go into it. Right. Well, I, I think more of my question was on the idea of Firewalk with me. Like, is it a better film to watch? before the series to have understanding of Laura Palma as a character, or do you think you should watch it with that mystery beforehand and then go back and watch Firewalk with me, like it was originally intended? Yeah, I think I think you could go either way on it. I think there are benefits to go both ways, and in that way it doesn't make entirely the most sense as a prequel, which is why I have it a little bit down this list. Um, but I'd still do it. I still think it's a I think it's a, one of Lynch's best films, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um I also have Prometheus on the list, which which I didn't like at all the first time, and then upon revisiting, I, I've kind of fallen in love with it. It's definitely a more controversial film uh, I've seen. You know, I've seen all sorts of different takes on Prometheus, which is great. I think it's lovely that it's uh, interpretable in so many different ways. Certainly better than many of the other Alien sequels gives. I mean, that's the one of the only films I've ever walked out on. I was so mad when I originally saw it because I went in expecting aliens. But had mm-hmm. I stuck a lot around and like saw the alien at the end, maybe I would have, uh, you know, maybe I would have found a little bit of something in there. But I wasn't very willing originally to to see it as alien. Um, Any more? Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I have an endless list here. We have Casino Royale also. Oh yes, uh, the first Bond book. Yes. Yeah, I'm assuming you mean the, the the Daniel Craig one, not the John Huston film from yeah, 1967. I do mean the Daniel Craig one. I I think it's you know that Chris Cornell soundtrack's always stuck with me. It's it's such a great Bond film, and the only one I like of Craig's actually. Really, not even uh, Skyfall. I remember Skyfall being huge, big deal for people. No, not a big deal for me. I I don't even like Craig that much. I love him in Layer Cake. Um, that that was like. One of those things where the Bonds always play their best Bond character in other films. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like it's been it's been a long time since I've seen Layer Cake, but I remember not liking it myself. Oh, really? Yeah, but it's been way long. Like I couldn't say anything about it right now. It's because of how long it's been since I've seen it. 
I guess also finally on my list, I have Rogue One, which is my second favorite Star Wars film. And I know that's debatable in our community. Very, very debatable. And I guess it is kind of a prequel because it takes place after the third one and lays the plans for A New Hope. It's oh, the only it's, one. It's certainly a prequel. Yeah, I mean, it's really the only one that provides, like, you know, really attached consequences to that, that kind of lay a groundwork. Like, George Lucas made the whole series, the prequel series, and it, it just feels detached from everything else. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I think that would be an interesting discussion one day, Star Wars prequels and how they feel, because I don't know if I could ever actually accurately rate the prequels, because, you know, being born in the, the 90s, I kind of have a different perspective on them having grown up with them originally as opposed to the the main films so i don't know i'm still endeared to them in many ways but i, I would not call them good per se no and <laughs> i mean i i remember the excitement when they came out and i i i love being a part of that but but i also remember you know well i'm i'm also like late 80s so i i remember the excitement of the original you know re-releases in theaters and i i wasn't there for the originals but everyone has a fondness and i guess uh i guess we'll probably do the ranking podcast for one of those once we get our list finalized right yeah we'll go over a bit more i think we we delved a little bit into a tangent here but hopefully an enjoyable one yeah um fantastic beasts <laughs> not that interesting to us but um at number three we have dr seuss the grinch still hanging in there not that interesting either at number two we have creed 2 which I, I'm really excited to go see. Yeah, I'm surprised it's at two, but not number one. But I guess once we get to number one, we'll see why. But people are really excited for Creed 2. People love Creed. People love the Rocky movies in general. And, you know, even though it's not in Coogler's hands again, it looks like Creed 2 is shaping up to be something still really impressive. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical based on that director change. Because, I mean, this director's unproven, and I really want to see what he, he could do, because... I mean, my two favorite Rocky movies might be Rocky Four, controversial, but uh, and also Creed. So I'm kind of excited to see them both combined. You put Rocky Four and Creed both above the original Rocky. Mm-hmm. That's crazy to me. Rocky's a masterpiece in my eyes, but you know, I mean, Four is I think the one got the most meat you could take from. Like this makes the most sense as far as for where you would return to in the series for a sequel, bringing back Drago and basically bring his son in like the creed example here i mean because the whole plot point around it i mean the the emotional weight behind that about facing off against the guy who killed you know uh, apollo creed you know that's a huge deal yeah and that's yeah like i don't know what else you could mine from the rocky series except for that you know nugget of emotional depth you got there that makes me wonder if they'll continue from here i'm sure there's some somewhere they could go with it like a a sequel based on like a hulk hogan Mm-hmm. As, you know, as long as it's uh, good, whatever they, they do with it, it seems like the you know Creed films have been consistently good with these two. So I bet they could still do something good, but, I mean, how many more movies does Sylvester Stallone have in him? Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. At, at number one, we have Ralph Breaks the Internet. Um, what do you think of that? Well, you know, this was somewhat of an interesting film to me in concept when it was first pitched. I love the first Wreck-It Ralph film when it came out. I think it was one of the most accurate portrayal of video games we've seen in film, which is not something we get terribly often. And the characters were great, and it felt like a really true-to-heart Disney movie in lots of ways. But man, when that trailer hit, like, it was it was definitely controversial among people. Either you loved the hell out of it, or it was the worst thing you've ever seen. And I'm in that second camp, man. 
that you loved it, right? That that's what no, you mean? no, no. It looked awful. Okay. I'm like, this looks oh, okay. like some some corporate shell, you know, shell an emoji movie by way of Disney. <laughs> it does have a lot of similarities with the emoji movie, and especially going into internet culture now, I feel like that was kind of a a, a very questionable uh, route to take. So I'm interested to see how they do with that too. Well, it also seems like a crazy kind of time jump in events because, assumably, Wreck-It Ralph takes place sometime in the the 80s, the boom of arcade mm-hmm. games. So, like, there's a huge jump in time there. But, man, all the advertisements for it just seem to pander to the wrong audience for me, at least. Like, you know, good business move on Disney's end, you know, showing off all their princesses in the trailers and whatnot to get everyone excited about cameos, but... Man, if that if that isn't soulless, that seems like the most corporate decision you can make to make it about breaking social networks and kind of making that like the confluence of your advertising. Like fuck yeah. you, but also I want to go see it. Yeah, I I don't think I'll go see it necessarily unless I hear good things about it from people I trust. Then then maybe I could see it working out still, but it just it seemed like a total letdown for me based on the advertising and whatnot. It doesn't even have a you know, a lot of the portrait of the characters that I really enjoyed from the film. I think, Give me my <laughs> Fix-It Felix. Jack McBrayer's a treasure. Yeah, some of my favorite parts were, like, the context of the video games, like the like the evil guys, like, sitting around, like, a almost like an AA meeting, um, discussing, like, like, oh, it's not so horrible being bad, where, you know, you could still be good. Well, that's the interesting thing that Wreck-It Ralph got to do, is that it got to actually explore the importance and, you know, the, the kind of ideas of video games here. By turning directly to the internet for your sequel, you, you kind of skip out on that entirely. There's there's other movies you could use to explore internet culture, and preferably less G-rated ones, but, uh, so, you know, I just think that this is this is not a good avenue for Wreck-It Ralph to go on to, but of course this is all without having seen the film. So my daughter's too, still too early to take her, you think? Uh, I mean, probably... Nothing too bad in there. Yeah. Just I mean, play I, the clip I think with she the, could the probably Disney princesses it. over yeah. and over again. She'll love it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there seems to be a bit of that in there. But uh, other than that, uh, I'm a little bit disappointed with the box office this week. It seems like some... Well, it, it always goes this way in the holidays, right? Some some questionable right. stuff that's easily marketed is dropped in this time period. So It's, it's usually all family-oriented stuff. And, of course, animated things will always do better because you got the whole family there. And it's like a, you know, three- or four-person package deal for every showing. Yeah. So that's why we got we got Ralph and we got the Grinch, Grinch all the way at the top there. And, I mean, otherwise that might be inexplicable, but I think we're, I think we're okay to move on from it here. Yeah. Let's get into our featured film of this week, the, the 1976 political satire... From Sidney Lumet. Network. A rich little man with white hair died. What has that got to do with the price of rice, right? And why is that woe to us? Because you people and 62 million other Americans are listening to me right now. Because less than 3% of you people read books. Because less than 15% of you read newspapers. Because the only truth you know is what you get over this tube. Right now, there is a whole, an entire generation that never knew anything that didn't come out of this tube. This tube is the gospel 
the ultimate revelation. This tube can make or break presidents, popes, prime ministers. This tube is the most awesome goddamn force in the whole godless world. And woe is us if it ever falls into the hands of the wrong people. Well, it was originally released on November 27th, um, so that's kind of a cool tie-in for us. Yeah, that was actually entirely unintentional. We just really no. wanted to talk about Network because <laughs> it's a favorite film of ours, and it just so happened. Like, we discovered that today, that, oh, shit, the movie came out today. That's super cool. I wish it was, like, a more fitting anniversary. Like, what would this be? This would be the... 42nd. 42nd. Yeah, year. That's not that's not like a nice round number or anything. We should have waited three years. I guess I guess I want to get it out of the way right away. That uh, at least about like political discussion. I guess the fortieth anniversary was you know the month Trump was elected. So I guess we could just uh, talk about that uh, the political ideas in it. Yeah. So there's a lot going on uh, politically in the film, and a lot of it's stated outright. But essentially, and I see a lot of people claim this is that uh, screenwriter Patty Chayefsky, who, who penned the film. That a lot of people kind of, you know, praise him as this almost psychic power he had for foreseeing how, you know, media and you know news broadcasting would evolve and change to become this sensationalized nightmare. Yeah. And I mean, it is. It very much is. And network feels just as, if not more, relevant today than it did in 1976. But it's not so much that you know there wasn't any indication that this is where things were going. This is very much, you know, similar of the times and. 1976, especially with a lot of the sensationalized violence you got, you know, going on and things. I mean, this is off of the heels of the Vietnam War and all of that being shown on TV. So this is not a foreign concept to audiences, you know. No, who are watching the I think news I think the, I mean, I think the time you're in always feels the most real and the most prescient when you watch media. Like in the 70s, of course, this felt incredibly prescient coming off the off the war, and then. You have movies like this and all the president's men out there. And I mean, like two sides of the same coin. Like there's a lot to explore back then. And it did predict kind of the rise of like the O'Reilly's. And it almost became like the format of like a, you know, Fox News host uh, that they would model their show on, which which is almost a nightmare. So that's an interesting thing as well to talk about is that, you know, Fox News has kind of become the, the face of sensationalized media in a lot of ways. And... You know, this was, uh, network came out back when there was only three networks. You had it, you mm-hmm. know, there was no Fox News at this point. Fox News didn't come around until the 90s. So they made up this other network called UBS for the film, which is effectively becomes what Fox News is. And that's why a lot of people say that the film is predictive in, you know, its events in here and whatnot. It's because Fox News very much evolved into some of the, you know, ravings and lunacy that network dis- displays here. I would say that the you know the writer of this film he he was in the writing rooms in the 1960s of early television. I mean he it's even if it's predictive he also has the experience to make this so authentic. I I don't even know if there's a you know other than modern realizations like Thirty Rock. There's not a lot of uh, perfect representations of what a network actually feels like. Like you might have like Larry Sanders show or something that's more like the entertainment side, but there aren't very many like scathing satires left about, um, you know, big media companies. And... I, I have to say, as far as satire goes as well, Network has to be like the perfect satire. It's such a hard line because you got three different types of it there. You got satire, you got pastiches, and you got parodies. And that line between satire and parody is so close 
And it's so easy to trip and fall into a more Brooksian side of things where you just, you know, are making jokes all the time. A network doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Network is very much so a serious satire, and it doesn't fall into the other way of becoming too much like what it's portraying in a uh, Starship Troopers kind of way, I guess. You know, that's another good example of Starship Troopers is a great satire, but it's almost too good because you can't see the difference all the time. Yeah, I mean, in the uh, it's so different from the book that you can't you can't find the satire almost in the film because because well, it's, it's just because of the portrayal in in Starship Troopers how it almost becomes the propaganda it's trying to satirize. You know, it, it, there there's not quite enough um, acknowledgement there of this is ridiculous. You know, yeah. Whereas Network absolutely nails that. There were times upon this rewatching where I was laughing but in an awful way like <laughs> oh god this is what everything is like i'm crying i think it i think network for me isn't really a laugh out loud movie i mean i feel like no, i'm no, laughing on the inside but also seething right like it, it's not meant for you to laugh out loud necessarily that's just my my reaction is that no. some of the things because of this thing is that the portrayal of things is so over the top and ridiculous this is some of the hammiest kind of acting in some areas but a hundred percent works because that's what the script calls for. I guess we should say that this one of the this is definitely a writer's film. It's one of the few where the writer got something like a final cut. Um, so I mean, it's significant. Also, you know, won the author uh, Oscar, and it feels like a writer's film throughout. Like directors don't look at this film, um, maybe the same way that writers do. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this film certainly got a lot of attention in 1996. I mean, we can especially look at the Academy Awards and how much attention it got there, and certainly deserved a lot, almost all of that. You said it's a writer's film primarily, but I might be inclined to disagree with a bit, because I'd say it's almost an everything kind of film. Patty Chayefsky's script certainly gets to show off a lot, but man, the acting in this is just as exemplary. And I mean, some of the award competition was within this film, like, uh, you know, you'd have two male nominees and then one would win out over just this film. You know, with ten nominations, there's a lot to work with. That's always something I've kind of wondered, because, you know, certainly Peter Finch has the more glamorous role of Howard Beale, the bombastic, you know, newscaster who mm-hmm. becomes this messiah of, you know, the the world. But, you know, William Holden gives a grand performance as well here, and they were both nominated for the same award for leading actor. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of the reason why uh, Peter Finch ended up winning the award was because it was posthumous. He was the first actor that I'm aware of uh, to win a posthumous Academy Award. And his performance is incredible. I think everyone, um, I think that's to Lummet's credit that the way that he conducts, um, especially ensemble casts. Have you seen um, 12 Angry Men? Oh, I mean, who hasn't seen 12 yeah. Angry Men? If, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen 12 Angry Men, get off and go watch it. And I think, I think um, I, I look back over some of his other films and the way that he's able to conduct a group and how everything feels so practiced and precise that um, it feels that uh, there's no room for improvis- impro- impro- improvising improvisation. In his films. I, I can't talk today. Um, there's almost, uh, you know, it feels like everything's set in stone and off the script and it works out. I think it's important as well to highlight that, because we're going to talk a lot more about the actors and the writing here than the directing, per se, but um, Sidney Lumet has quite the eclectic 
filmography that we kind of need to acknowledge. You already mentioned 12 Angry Men, but he also made, you know, such other great works as Dog Day Afternoon and uh, Murder on the Orient Express. And I was watching a bit of the um, Dog Day Afternoon last night, uh, kind of reflecting on the way that Lume seems to handle New York and especially the East Coast settings. Uh, he has such a vibrant mind for what that 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 looks and sound like that you believe fully like this in network. It's a studio in New York. It couldn't be anywhere else. It couldn't be anything else. Yeah, no, and it's a fantastic portrayal of that. Um, you know, certainly everything going on. Like I said earlier as well. I think really getting into that idea of the the set of everything. You know, the the news set specifically and how all of that mm-hmm. is operating and going on. I love watching the the kind of setup to everything going on. You kind of have all that behind the scenes. Like one of the the opening things when Howard Beale first comes on the air for the first time and threatens how he's going to kill himself on air in a week, mm-hmm. which is a great moment. Um, yeah. But it all goes live and nobody stops anything because nobody was paying attention. Like yeah. everyone's just chatting in the booth going on while this guy is talking about killing himself. Mm-hmm. And, it just... and there's almost like a blindness to the way they made media back then where... You know, there's a rejection of people who wanted anything like, what do they call it, like reportage in the film. Like, anyone who has useful information was overlooked for almost like um, profits or self-believed profits. Well, that's the thing is that that's what's kind of the very predictive element of the film is that because that's what the audience responds to. In the beginning of the film, UBS is a failing network. They've never had anything in the top 40. They're the worst one out there. But after Howard makes his claim about killing himself on the air, everything starts looking up because people love sensationalized media. And that's where things take off. And then it began competing against, like, you know, whatever the big shows all in the family back in that time period would be. But well, that's, that's an interesting thing is that they actually bring up some of those shows in context. They bring up, you know, all the family in consideration. Whatnot. You know, there's a great, great quote from it when uh, Howard and... Max, you know, William Holden's character, are talking about uh, him getting, uh, Howard getting fired. Like very, like, the first scene of the film or so. And, you know, when Max tells him that, Howard's reaction is like, he's got, I'm going to kill him myself. And I love the line there that Max has. He says, you know, you get a hell of a rating, you know, and they can make a whole show out of this sensationalized thing. Suicides, assassinations, mass bombers. They'll wipe Disney right off the fucking air. Yeah. <laughs> and it's great. <laughs> I mean, they suggest several times in the film that they're going to almost play with the idea of, like, what if someone gets murdered? And they're like, let's bring some guys in to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, that, and that's the interesting aspect is that, you know, uh, of this idea of sensationalizing it, whereas it's not only um, actively pursuing it and, you know, showcasing it, but actively manipulating things to take that into account. You know, they actually start making programming for terrorists on the show. Mm-hmm. That's the element of it that's the satire and you and you look at that and you're supposed to look at network and say that's ridiculous they would never do that kind of thing they have integrity but nowadays you look at it and it's like when does this show start yeah i mean yeah what's what's the satire at this point i mean it if you look back on it now it looks like documentary if you if you hadn't experienced it before the you know what's going on in current affairs I, th- I think I saw in an interview with uh, Sidney Lumet, the, you know, the director, he said, the only thing that happens in network that hasn't happened in real life yet is killing someone on live television. That's the only thing he said. A lot of the film is about 
something like speechifying and coming across as a prophet and there's it's not really the way people talk but it's the way like Aaron Sorkin and especially writers of like a of uh news parodies do think and believe people talk I mean it's an effective way of showing what the media looks like and sounds like well well what works for it in network is specifically it's not that just people are doing this because that's how the writers want them to talk it's because that's how the audience wants them to talk you know the reason that Howard Beale keeps making these mad proclamations in these you know messianic way is because that's what the audience responds to because they want more of it because they demand it of them and so he keeps giving it to them and when it doesn't and when they don't respond as well to it that's when the network adjusts and try and does things differently and tries to work with it. I think there's, you know, there's a few readings you could give there. Like a, I mean, I think I first saw it in like a media studies class, and I feel like it. I feel like it's important to look at for anyone that wants to get into, um, you know, network television or you know, it's not even so much a thing anymore. I think that's the only way that the film's really dated is that uh, networks don't matter as much as they used to. Oh, I think the the sentiment of the film is more so than just networks. At some points, they come out and specifically spell out the dangers of television and entertainment news, you know, as that aspect. Um, you know, I'm trying to think, there's, there's specific quotes, like one of the last speeches Howard gives about it is all about television, how we've been brought up on television, how we're controlled by the tube, how, you know, nobody reads anymore, nobody, you know, thinks of themselves, they just believe whatever the tube tells them. That's still very much true, even if we're not talking about network television, if we're talking about the, the internet or streaming or whatever it is that we get our information from, that's what's controlling us now. Because it's it, it's that manipulative power of television and the likes. And the same thing can be applied to film as well. Those hysterics around any kind of new media uh, comes about every time there's a new invention. Like, like now that we're dealing with, you know, the... The middle early days of social media, we could kind of apply the sensationalism to what's happening there. Like the people on Fox News don't seem extreme anymore when you look at the president's Twitter. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sad those ways things are going almost to a point where it seems irreversible. But you know, I think there's a lesson to take away that you know we can learn and get away from this and act on things. But this might be the world we live in for a long time. And has been because I mean network's been around for forty years, and you can see, and and that's what happens with television. So I think that why network is not only an important film for you know general uh, people interested in television to see, but also just people in general should see is because it comes out flat and tells you the audience in the face that you are being manipulated by the people on television, and you're no longer thinking for yourselves, and you need to stop it if you don't want things to get insane. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, television and movies, they're about the most uh, passive entertainment you could take in, so I think it's good to engage with some that are somewhat challenging and, and are willing to reflect, uh, you know, reflect that manipulative relationship that's happening. Well, I think that's the interesting thing as well, is that, you know, uh, media of, you know, television and film are probably the most powerful forms of media out there to have ever existed. People look at a newspaper and they still make thoughts for themselves. They don't make they don't let the newspaper inform them completely. Mm-hmm. Whereas for films and television have such a manipulative power to become these propaganda devices, and it, and it's dangerous. I mean, you can see that's what you know. I, I mean, I don't want to make the 
radical, obvious uh, parallel, but, you know, that's what Hitler did yeah. with, you know, films. Triumph of the Will is a street, you know, he recognized the power of film had as a propaganda device. And it's the same thing with television. And that's what's going on every day in our lives and everything. It, basically, Network is a film that calls to you and says to continue to be critical thinking. You know, use critical thinking on everything. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of what we started to see in the mid-70s were the films that were beginning to become aware of those, uh, that they could be radicalized, that there was the power within cinema to completely change people. I mean, look at, like you say, Hitler, There's he had a complete fascination with cinema and um, and he was able to radicalize it and make, you know, I mean, he, he made moving works off of film. I mean, it, there's some... It, it feels bad to watch it, but there's there's some power behind what they created there. Well, it just goes to saying, you know, people will accept the things they want to hear. I think what was interesting, at least what I pulled from Network this time on this viewing, was the even more interesting perspective gives you of what the people behind the camera want you to do in their manipulation. Mm-hmm. There's several speeches that Howard Beale gives throughout the film, but each of them are different, and the you know the corporate uh, heads' reaction to them are different at each time. The very first big one is what they want, and that's what launched Howard's success in the first place. The very famous "mad as hell" speech is um, you know basically what everything sensational media wants. He says to them specifically, "Hold on, I think I've got it here." Is that <clears throat> I want you to get mad? I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write your congressman because I don't want. Uh, I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first you gotta get mad, and that's all they want. Because if you take change, then it causes problems. Sensationalist media only works if it just evokes that reaction. That's exactly the only thing they want. All the presidents, man, you could see the other side that there, there is useful media that that there is, there are journalists out there that are trying to report and compete with uh, programs that have ideals like the ones in network. Well, I think what's what's interesting as well is that you've got that character, you've got that important character in Max, who is kind of the old guard, you know, uh, you know, hard journalist, you know, feels passionate about telling the truth still, and you need him there in that film because if you don't have him, then you. you the satire becomes farce because then it's just ridiculous shit happening nonstop. You need someone there against it to fight back and be morally righteous to compare it to the, you know, sheer ridiculousness of the other events. I think that uh, for me, it is about the setting of the the news agency and how they're um, the way that people come in and interact with each other. I kind of like that inside show business part, and I mm-hmm. like the sense that um, Lumet must have. Uh, um, you know, everyone in the set seems to know something about the work. Everything's set up in a particular way, and it all works for me. Uh, I have to say, if it's on my end, that I, I really just enjoy, of course, the performances and the writing kind of in tandem here, like not one over the other, per se, because they're both critical to communicating the, you know, the, the satire of what's going on here. Um, I love William Holden, especially as an actor. He's one of my absolute favorites. And he's fantastic in this role, you know, playing against everyone. And I, and I love how all the characters kind of interact. He's got this care for Howard throughout the film. and But, you know, he's very frustrated and angry by the end of it because of what they've done to manipulate him into this 
insane, you know, uh, maniacal person who's just going on and raving whatever he's told to do. Mm-hmm. And of course, Faye Dunaway gives a fantastic performance here, potentially the the best of her entire career. Absolutely you know, just, agree there. Just being, yeah, you know, straight, and, and they even like kind of go on this way like she's essentially television incarnate, as they say by the end of the film. That's what her character is all about, and just like with a straight face, she'll pitch these horrendously misguided ideas that are entirely manipulative and dangerous. And as long as it makes ratings, she don't care. She certainly loses all of her... Like the film even comments, characters comment, that she's lost her humanity by the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Like, like I said, they I'm, I'm pretty sure they come out and straight out say that she's just like television. She's all the awful things. And, you know, if... Uh, so, in, in that relationship between her and Max's character is kind of symbolic of the themes of the film throughout, that fighting of the old, you know, in, you know, integrity of news journalism versus the sensationalism and entertainment aspect of television, and them constantly clashing up e- each other, trying to make something work, but they just can't. So the whole t- ultimate moral of the film is you can't have, you know, entertaining, um, you know, m- media that's also trying to be completely and 100% honest. It's a very hard balance to strike, and very few, I think, have done so. I, well, I, I guess what's in- actually interesting thinking about that, you know what, is probably all the satirical parody uh, television, you know, like the news broadcast shows, what, like your Colbert Reports and Daily Shows and whatnot, mm-hmm. are probably more honest and informative than a lot of the news broadcasts that are going out. Yeah, I mean, I think they might have a little bit better grasp on reality and that... Um satire can often be more reflective of a of a common truth than someone trying to find their own facts to back up their own um, agenda mm-hmm. and that's often what these uh network you know shows become you know stuff like like Fox and even you know on your your liberal science with your CBS and whatnot they end up becoming echo chambers of constantly checking back to hear what you want you're supposed to be angry about and I think that's what network does really well is well, because basically everyone around the country is turning to Howard Beale, asking, what should I be angry about today? Tell me what I'm supposed to do, oh, messianic newsman. And I mean, I don't I don't even know what, exactly what the film wants us to be angry about, except for television and the power it has to manipulate us. I mean, what, what do you think that is? Well, I think that's not only that, but the, you know, uh, the... <clears throat> the integrity that you lose with uh, journalism as well is a huge aspect of the film, not just the television aspect, because certainly television is mani- manipulative, but, you know, it's meant to be for what it's done, as long as it's done with the righteous purpose, as in for entertainment purposes. But the news should not be entertainment. The news should be informative and impartial, and the news should not be striving for... The, the, the only way to measure the success of news is by your own value, not by some number of people watching. Yeah, I, I mean, I think people have, uh, there are journalists out there still doing really good work, and I think Absolutely. there's the power of the television finally bringing, you know, unadulterated images into your home 24-7, and the capacity for someone to tap into that and to create their own image and to uh, do the same as, you know, it's a stretch, the same as Hitler, and have a propaganda of their network. It's it's just, it's some scary shit. I think, you know, if anything, what network is trying to get at is that the only solution to the problem lies within the people 
who continually choose to watch and listen to these these propaganda machines, you know, who constantly spew the stuff. You know, the world is not going to change. They they spell it out pretty explicitly there that the the world is not of nations and people. It's of businesses interacting with one another. The world will always be a business, and so you can't depend on the businesses that control what you take in to be honest and forward with everything. It's up to you. It's up to the audience. You know, it's up to the individual to be intelligent and informed and make their own decisions. I think that's part of it, too, is just to uh, have an awareness check about where your stuff is coming from. Um, I mean, that's the first thing you'll do in a media relations class is start analyzing not only the sources, but who backs the sources. Um, what has that reporter had relations with? Who follows them? Uh, where do they come from? What's their background? You know, what, you know, what are they actually bringing to news? You know, Mm -hmm. well, it's just, I think that's a safe rule for everyday life is that you can't take anything at face value. You know, everything is, you know, up for questioning. You got to make sure that you understand it to the best of your ability, or at the very least understand that you are choosing to accept what is being told here as truth and that whatever consequences that has are your own doing. And, Although I do find some of network to be speechifying or creating um, some kind of illusion in itself, I I think it's one of the best satires. I, I love the network, and I don't want to give any impression that I feel otherwise. So. Well, one, one thing I guess that's important to talk about as well is that, you know, we can talk about any kind of other important or significant or symbolic film here, but network is damn entertaining to watch, too, and that's an important facet to it, I think which is, you know, kind of works in with its uh, theme there. I can watch Network uh, repeatedly because of how much I enjoy the performances, the story, the, uh, you know, the events is how things escalate. It's paced very well. It's shot great. Uh, I don't know if you noticed in the film, but, like, there's no music throughout except for that's what's featured through television or on, on television. I'd also say for its year, you know, like 1976, there's, it, it has to be my favorite film of that year. I I, love uh, I mean, that's, a, that's such a tough thing to say. I'm glad you brought that up, though, because especially if you look at the Oscar contenders for that year as well, oh, 1976 was an insane year because you mentioned All the President's Men. It was yeah. also in 1976. Oh, was it? You had, yeah. You had Rocky in 1976, which took Best Picture, which you probably shouldn't have, but it's still a very deserving film, I think at least. And then you also had Taxi Driver in 1976. Yeah, Taxi Driver makes it kind of hard to uh, make the... As big of a statement. Definitively, yeah, certainly. All all four of these films were competing in that year. That's an insane year to me for for movies. You know, and I think there's a lot of apt comparisons to be made between Network and, like you mentioned, All the President's Men, and even Taxi Driver there with its, um, you know, the the ability, the influence of things and how far things can go uh, as far as for violence. Its portrayal of violence is very good in both. I think Taxi Driver also works as its own kind of... um, satire in a way but it's more of a satire of people than it is of things going on and hopefully people pick up on that when they watch taxi driver travis bickle is not the good guy yeah i mean i think so i think i think it's incredible that rocky would have won over this film (laughs) if if we had a take back i feel like that might be an important one to fix consider i mean you know there are a lot of oscar discrepancies over the years but this one is one of those i remember patty or not patty uh, sydney lumet kind of being about uh, not getting this picture, but yeah. in all fairness, uh, Network did sweep up 
just about every other Oscar there going on. It's oh yeah, home yeah, a lot. I mean, it was well nominated. I mean, this is also a year with like *A Star Is Born*, the version I like, the you know mm-hmm. the Streisand version, and um, also *The Man Who Fell to Earth*. There's some there's some other good stuff around. Yeah. I would like to point out as well as while we're on the subject of Oscars and network in particular, uh, this film has the very special honor of the best supporting actress Oscar won that year for Beatrice Street is the shortest for that award in any of film history. She only has about five minutes of screen time as Max's wife. I think there are a but, couple like that in the film where they, they didn't have a ton of screen time, but they still found nomination. Well, I mean, look at, yeah, Ned Beatty's another one. He yeah. had a actor one and he basically just has that, one really great speech where he kind of gives fire and brimstone to Howard Beale about what he's supposed to be doing. You know, you are challenging the very nature of the world, you know, Mr. Beale, and all that. I think all the peace players are very important to network that nobody puts a foot wrong. Everyone delivers exactly what you're expecting and wanting them to. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's all very exaggerated acting and very up there, but it's perfectly suiting everything going on because you got that satirical tone to everything. So when... Ned Beatty's character is giving that whole speech and he's, you know, stringing his finger up in the air and whatnot. <laughs> you know, it, it still feels fitting. What's yeah, going on. absolutely. No, there, there's no misstep in Network, which is fantastic. Yeah, I think it's it's almost flawless. And, I mean, I we looked at those other 76 films, but not many of them would be in my top 20, if any others. No, and, you know, that's one of the things as well that's interesting, is that Network is one of those films that I've always loved since watching it the first time and I've often struggled with uh, how, you know, can I fit this in my top ten or not because unlike most people I actually love kind of thinking about that and constantly readjusting but <laughs> this time it, it definitely stuck itself in, in my mind as to how genius and entertaining it is the dialogue in particular, some of the moments in the film are so fantastic, I mean, they're so great to watch just how it's all out there like I said, I, I love this and I laughed along with it this time, but in an existential kind of way. Like, this is horrifying, but it's it's done in such a humorous, enjoyable manner, I guess. Dark laughter could be such a valuable trait for any kind of art. that uh, yeah. It can be a lot more valuable than um, getting a quick laugh off of a, you know, a crude joke. Well, I try to think about, like, if you if you played this even more seriously, like, if you played Network as 100% seriously, took, like, this, you know, the sillier, exaggerated elements out more so, and just played this as a more true-to-life thing, then I don't think it'd be nearly as good. Hmm. I, don't, I don't think you'd enjoy it as much. It would just feel sad the whole time. And some of the, the bureaucratic stuff would also just kind of go over. I think that's an interesting aspect of the film we didn't really touch on as well, is that there is a lot of that discussion of um stocks and points and whatnot all over the place and you don't understand any of it but you get a sense of the understanding you know up is good down is bad you know all that and so when they communicate it like it all sounds like jargon but it sounds like authentic and you just roll with it the whole time i mean the the funny thing about new york's media empire is you know you also have you know you're around wall street and you're around um the east coast media is very different from the la media which is more mm-hmm. of Much like more. a Hollywood fied like media, right? It's very TV over there versus film here, more so. Not to say that we don't have either one on either side, but yeah. TV is the bigger emphasis I think you got over there. But I think there's a lot of the conglomerates and uh, the big business that founded these stations are all New York based for a reason because that's where the stock money is, and I think that's a good point about 
what's coming out of network is that it's influenced heavily by, you know, Lomé's uh, New York. All right, well, Calvin, do we have any other final thoughts on network before we wrap up here? No, I don't have anything. I I mean, go see it. You, you've got to go see the film. Uh, I guess I would like to note is the point of this time being, you know, recorded. It is free to stream on Amazon Prime, so everyone should see this if they have, you know, the ability to. It's a fantastic film. It's one of the best acted, best written films ever made. The direction is fantastic. I, I, I'm hard pressed to say if it's better than Twelve Angry Men in uh, Simulate Lumet's filmography, but I mean, it's the only thing I would even consider on that same level. It's a masterpiece in every facet. Yeah. How about how about his filmography? Are there there any blind spots for you? Like I haven't seen a verdict. Uh, you know, I haven't uh, quite seen the verdict yet. It's on my list for sure. I missed my chance to when it was on Netflix a little while ago. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, but uh, there's a couple other things here that I've been meaning to. Lumaze is just a little bit darker on my side. Like I've seen a couple of his things. Uh, let's see. I swear there was at least one thing I saw. I mean, I saw Serpico. I enjoy Serpico. Serpico's good. It's another one. Not quite as good as um, Dog Day Afternoon, I don't think, but up there, yeah. and it's got that very New York vibe. Have you seen Serpico? Yeah, I love Serpico. I love the book also, so I think he knows how to handle Pacino, and especially those two films are great, great visions of New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also did a Failsafe, I know, which is an mm. interesting film. came out the same year, I believe, as Dr. Strangelove, and it's basically an entirely straight version of the same oh. story. Yeah, I think... So, I think that covers everything I've seen of his. So, I mean, I love Twelve Angry Men, and you know, and yeah. this one's this one's even better. I think. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to say for certain, but I certainly feel that way. Like I said, snuck its way into my top ten this time, so I'll go ahead and say so. Check out Network if you have the ability to, and if you don't have the ability to, get the ability to. Absolutely. All right. Um, well, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Howard. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Yeah!